Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Wow, that was powerful, was it not? Woo, love that, love that. And uh, side note, I love you. I'm glad you're here. And whether you're in the room or you're tuning in from wherever it is that people tune in from, could be anywhere, uh, all over the place, I'm glad that we are all here together. Are you glad to be here with the person next to you? Yes. Say it like you mean it. Do you really? All right. I know. I notice you look one way and not the other way, but I'm just saying you can talk about that over lunch or counseling later this week. Just call me and we'll make an appointment. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, I am so glad that you're here and that we are going to just jump back into this series called Kingdom People that we've been in through the month of October. We're going to continue till the end of October, and then we have a big launch, a new series in, in November and launching really just missions and what we're going to talk about even when it has impact what's going to happen next year. So super stoked about what God is doing in the life of you, the church. So I'm really excited about that. I have a little confession that I want to just give to you real quick and just kind of a serious thing. Um, I know that when you look at your pastor, you look at him in, in a certain way, and no matter who the pastor is, and you put them on a, a really high pedestal, and I, I, I totally respect that, and you expect the utmost character from the pastor, which you should, because we're supposed to be above reproach. But I want you to know, I made a mistake back in about 2006 or seven that I just want to confess to you right now. We were in Florida at the time, and, and the confession is this, and a lot of people know this, but maybe you guys don't. Um, I, I, I kind of rolled into the Florida lifestyle, and, and part of the Florida lifestyle is, is like exciting, and it's fun, and, and people love to go to Florida. But one of the things I got swept up in is, is, is a certain hairstyle that I regret. Does anyone have a hairstyle they've ever regretted? Anyone, 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 anyone? There, thank you. Just, these are my people. So when we got to Florida, I got wrapped up in the Florida lifestyle and just kind of like it brings its own. If you're part of the Florida lifestyle, they call it the play state for a reason because it's a whole way of life that is just, it's just all encompassing. You, you can be literally within an hour from like where we were, everywhere from Disney and all around Orlando or the beach or spring training baseball, MLB fans are like right around there or the space, you know, all the space things up in uh, Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy, like all these things within an hour. It's like everything, every restaurant you'd ever want, every type of cuisine you could ever want. But also back then it was, there was a certain hairstyle that was sweeping its way, not just in Florida, but Around the world, I, maybe not. The, maybe that's a reach. I don't know. But it was just around, and so my confession is this: back then, I I, I put frosted tips in my hair. I don't know if you guys know what frosted tips are, but I, you probably think less of me, and I totally understand that. It was a lapse of judgment, um, and and actually, I went into the not the barber, the hairstylist, because you don't go to a barber for such things. And I went into the hairstylist, and I said, I want frosted tips. And they looked at me, and they're like, what? And I said, frosted tips, it means I want the bottom of my hair to be the regular color of my hair, but I want the top to be bleached or dyed or whatever you do. And then I want to be able to spike it up so when you look at it, it looks blonde on top, but then it looks 
base color on the bottom, frosted tips, and they were the thing. Though seriously, they were. They were. It was good and, and, and not, not so much. It's like one of those things you look at an old picture, and you're, you look at it, and you're like, what was I thinking? And I fairly recently looked at one of those pictures, like, what was I thinking? And my pants were like, they were like baggy like this. And they were just huge. Everything about it was just weird. And my glasses were really, really small, and my hair was big. So... What's interesting now, all these years later, I have a different type of frosted tips coming in. It shows, they're all natural, though. They're all natural, and I, and I just owe that to my kids, I think, I'm pretty sure, but um, in ministry. But it's interesting. You see, the Florida lifestyle is such that, again, once you're there, it doesn't matter where you're from, you get in there, it's really easy to get swept up into what's going on there and just kind of be taken away from like just this vacation vibe and you wear flip-flops and you wear khakis and floral shirts and all of these things just like get wrapped up in the whole, the whole Florida lifestyle, which is great. But unfortunately, I found it to be a hard place to actually to, to be embedded and to be a follower of Jesus. I just did. Because there are so many things to distract someone from the thing that should be the, the, that's the most important in their life. And, and we enjoyed our time there. The five years there were great. There was fruitful ministry. But at, when we were there, it was just so different because the lifestyle there was so different than here where we were raised. And we had had some experience in Florida, in northern Florida, but it was just totally different. And that part of that lifestyle, I just saw people going a bunch of different places and occasionally pop into church, but then they would go somewhere else and they would just vanish and then they would come back. And that was normal because that was the what lifestyle? The Florida lifestyle. Not necessarily worldly in every way. Could have been, but it was just a lifestyle thing. It's just like it was just normal. There's a connection point here with the people of God, what we're talking about in Jeremiah 29, and it's this. The people of God are leaving Judah. They're being exiled out of their homeland into Babylon and into a whole culture that's different than the one that they were raised in. It's just altogether different. And as they're taking, taken away from their lifestyle, they had to decide, were they going to keep the same principles that God wanted them to keep or would they just put those all aside and live amongst the Babylonians as a Babylonian? To, now, the people of God, the, the people being exiled out of Judah, about 10,000 people, when they were taken out of Judah into Babylon, they were there not as slaves. This isn't the, the, the story with Israel and the Egyptians. They weren't slaves. Instead, it was, the, it was the top echelon, the ones who they thought had more promise. That's the ones that the Babylonians picked, which is why I referenced last week in Daniel 1 that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and Daniel were all exiles, and they were all looked at as being these young men of promise and prominence. So they were the type of people that the Babylonians wanted. They were type of people that the Babylonians wanted because the Babylonians wanted to, to use their, their skills to help develop, develop land and, and agriculture and to, to help feed the big cities that were around there. And Babylon wasn't just some, some like, you know, dirty, disgusting place. It was actually the type of place there was, there was these hanging gardens in Babylon that, that was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. So in my mind, I look at this and they valued art and they valued some architecture and they valued learning and, and math and 
and the sciences. It was a whole lifestyle. So the people of God, when they're being plucked out of their homeland, now they're, they went into Babylon, but they had to decide, are they going to actually still serve the God that they once served in Judah? Or are they going to abandon God and worship the many gods in Babylon? There's a tension there, isn't there? Because now that paints a picture of, of Babylon isn't just some terrible place. It isn't, it isn't Egypt. They're not just making bricks for Pharaoh. Instead, there was something there on offer so that the people had to decide what lifestyle are we going to live amongst these pagans? What lifestyle are we going to live amongst these unbelieving people? Are we going to actually be witnesses of God's glory and God's goodness in the middle of this space? Or are we going to become just like them? Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 11, is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at just a few verses. We're going to start with Jeremiah eleven 14. I've already shared a little bit about the instructions that God gave through Jeremiah to those going into exile as to what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to build houses, to settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. They were also supposed to marry and give their kids over to marriage. And they were supposed to have kids and live fruitful lives. They were also, also supposed to pray for the city, seek, seek the best for the city, because if the, the city were to prosper, then the people would prosper. And now the instruction continues in verse 11. And God says this. Actually, just for kicks, let's back up to verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The exiles were, were given this promise that they were going to be there for 70 years. But yet in the midst of this 70-year span, sure, there was going to be a generation who would die off, but yet there would be other people who would remember the exile and they would go back to their homeland. This is a promise. But even in the midst of this, God reminds the people of Judah of this. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's, declares the Lord, excuse me. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God is reminding the people, sure, these things are happening to you. You're right in the middle of, of the unthinkable. You're going to be taken from your homeland. You're going to live as a colony. And you have to choose, are you going to live like the rest of the Babylonians? Or are you going to continue to honor me as God? But even in the midst of this tension, God reminds them so lovingly and so gently. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. In other words, God's got it worked out. He knows what's going on. 
He knows the future. He knows the past. And he says, there are plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, God's plans for the exiles were positive, but not immediate. God's plans for the exiles were positive, but not immediate. They were going to have to wait 70 years to see the fulfillment of this promise. But in the midst of this 70-year time frame as living as exiles in a small community separated away from the rest of their people, even in the midst of this, God reminds them and he reminds you and I. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans, meaning ongoing, which means God did not abandon them and God did not abandon you. God did not look at their situation and say, you did it again, I'm over it. I'm over it, I'm over you, I'm abandoning you, and I'm going to go look out to see if there's another group of people who can love me better. And praise God that he doesn't do that today. Because my heart can be fickle. My heart can, I can love God so passionately in one sense, and yet Satan can come all up on me, and I can just want to give all that away in a moment. God's plans for the exiles were positive, but not immediate. Oh, church, we live in such a, just an immediate gratification culture. We want everything, and we want it right now. And if we don't get it right now, we think, God, what are you doing? Don't we? Am I the only one who tends to think this way, or is there somebody else who can give testimony about that this morning? Apparently, it's just me. That's okay. See, I think, I think sometimes we just we get so bought into into getting it so fast, and we think, if I can just get it fast, then I can just absorb what I want to absorb, and I can just move on with the rest of my life. You see, God had a plan for them, and he has a plan for us, but it's not just that we would, be a, that we would just reach a place, that we would just go to heaven, but instead, he is so concerned on who we become on our way there. God is so concerned with how the exiles are going to behave and what they're going to believe while they're in the middle of Babylon. God is so concerned with that. And he's so concerned about how you live and how you behave and what you love and who you love and how you raise your kids and who you vote for and, and when you vote and how you vote and what, what passions you have in your heart. God is so concerned about all these things. He's not just concerned with, with where we're going to go, the place that we go. He is so concerned with the people and working with us before we get to where we're going. And yet we have to, to fight the tendency, and it's in every one of us. The tendency is, if, if, I, if, if it's worth having, I should just be able to get it quick. Oh, I, I can't even count on fingers and toes how many people have come up to me through the years of ministry and they've treated church in the same way. Their life's been an absolute wreck and they just come talk to me or they come to talk to somebody in ministry and they just, they just show up at church one time and they just think the church is just going to clean their life up. They've been making a mess of their life for 18 years and they show up to church one time and they're like, well, God, where were you? I went to church. I'm like, hey, you got to give God more than an hour, okay? Sometimes you got to give God more than an hour. We've been making a mess of things for 18 years or 20 years or two years or three years. Sometimes God cleans us up instantly, and sometimes it takes a long, long, 
long time. God's plans were, they were positive, they were hopeful. This was, God was reminding them, hey, this is who you are and this is what's going to happen, but it was not immediate. And we in the church can do the same thing. We can treat God in the same way, whether we just show up at church one time and think, well, God, you should just clean up my life. It's just over. Or or have have someone go talk to the pastor, be like, I'm going to have my kid go talk to the pastor. You've been raising your kid for 10 years, and you expect me to fix something in an hour. That ain't bad. I mean, that's just not not good. That's bad, bad math is what that is. that's, That's just not even realistic. You see, spiritual growth is not immediate. We're saved in a moment, but we're sanctified and made holy. We're set apart for a lifetime. God's doing a work on you right now. If God has your attention right now in this moment, in this room, or or wherever you are, if you're listening right now, God has your attention, which means that God is working. God is working. There are other examples in the scriptures of this where, where it was the, the people knew that, that their conduct mattered and yet they were still waiting on God, waiting for their hearts to be right and that God would, would move. And Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, but 1 through 6 says this. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God uh, disperses you among the nations... And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where, you, where he scattered you. Verse 4 says this, Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belong to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love him with all of your heart and with all your soul and live. Verse 7 says this, The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all of his commands I'm giving you today. Then the Lord your God will, will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commandments and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So there are conditions. There are promises, but there are conditions. That God was going to deliver the people, but yet he wanted their hearts to be right. Oh, he wants our hearts to be right today. He wants us to to not be given away to, to, to just circumstances. And he wants us to patiently wait on him. Because the things in the world that bring about immediate gratification most of the time aren't that valuable anyway. There's a... Interesting connection here, actually, to Daniel 9. This should be on the screen. Daniel 9, verses 2 and 3 says this. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learning or learned that 
from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. The message now of one of the exiles knowing that in the middle of the circumstance, Daniel and the other exiles, they know, okay, we're going to be here for a long time. We need to trust God in the middle of where we're going and where we currently are. You see, the exile, when God was exiling and taking people out of Judah into Babylon, God had a plan the whole time. We read this in verse 11. God had a plan the whole time of them leaving Babylon and being able to come back home. The whole sequence of events, God out of his providence, he was managing and taking care of. He was looking after his people. So what does that mean for us? That means that you can be down, but you're never out if if you seek God with your whole heart. That means that you can be down, you can feel down, you can feel beaten up, but yet if you seek God with your whole heart, God will respond. It also means that there's no one beyond the love of God and there's no one beyond the grasp of God. I thought of a, my mind, I, I think in pictures sometimes and in clips, and I was thinking about all those movies when somebody's on the side of a cliff and there's nothing they can do and they're just dangling on the side of the cliff and you just see a hand there and you're just, you, the, hand, the person is just shaking and you think, oh my goodness, if they fall from this cliff, it's just disaster for them. And then all of a sudden, they snap out and then a hand comes over, right? And they grabs the person. And then totally unrealistic, one hand then pulls the other person, the dead weight of the person up over the cliff and to the top of the cliff and the person survives. Totally unrealistic in the movies. If, if I'm waiting on you to, to pull my weight off of a cliff, I'm gone and you are too. Okay, it's probably where it's going down. But not so with God. You may feel like you're dangling, like, you're, like you have nothing left. Your fingers are slipping off the cliff. You don't know what else to do. And there's no one beyond the grasp of God. No one. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you've done it with. It does not matter. There's no one beyond the love and grasp of God. This is a message that every Christian needs to shout from the rooftops. There are many people who have abandoned God and they've abandoned church because they think God has abandoned them and the church maybe has abandoned them too. Not, that is not the truth. That is not the gospel. I'll prove it to you in this way. Matthew 18 says this. Matthew 18, verse 12 through 14. This is on the screen. What do you think? This is Jesus' words, by the way. If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, this is the words of Jesus, he rejoices over the sheep, that one sheep, more than the 99 that did not astray. In the same way, It is not the will of the Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. In other words, it doesn't matter how far you've strayed or how long you've strayed or who you've strayed with. You're of the 99, excuse me, you may be of the 99, but you may have been one of the ones who strayed and you could be the one who you think that your life is just a mess and it's all of your own making and you think that you, this the whole world is caving in on you God is looking at you. 
He's looking for you. In that parable, you're the one. Jesus loves all 100, but he knows that the 99 are okay because they're where they should be. But yet, God's heart is still inclined to the one who's, who's desperate and longing and lonely and struggling and who's away from where they should be. That God doesn't, he doesn't just abandon you because maybe in a season you've abandoned him. There's no one beyond the love and grasp of God. No one. We just got done with this series called Shiny Happy People. And the reason why that series is butted up against this series is is I was just hoping and believing that the Holy Spirit of God would just till up the soil of your soul and your heart to soften you to receive this message. That perhaps maybe you've lived as someone who, who really just lived as they had it all together and yet we spent seven weeks looking at people who thought they had it all together only to find out they didn't have it all together. And maybe that's part of your story, but what I want all of us to understand is God loves you. And he loves you so much and he loves you in such a way that he's not going to allow you to just stay in the situation that you're in. Even if you are still caught in the trap of being a shiny, happy person, God's Holy Spirit, if you're in him, God's Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And he continually speaks to you. If indeed the Spirit of God is in you. You see, you can seek and find God when your heart is right. You can seek and find God when your heart is right. I promise you, you will find God if you seek Him with your heart, your true heart. And yet, all that sounds amazing, doesn't it? And it's all true. But prosperous and hopeful never means problem-free. Prosperous and hopeful, right from this passage, never means problem-free. I would be lying to you if I said, you know what, if you just give your life to Jesus, it's all going to be fixed. That would be immediate gratification, would it not? It just wouldn't be true. If I said, you know what, if you just give your life to Jesus, it's all going to be fixed today, everything. Your money, your mama, Your marriage, your kids, your Aunt Betty, everybody's going to be fixed if you just give your life to Jesus. You see, usually when people say that, they also ask for money right after, just so you know. A lot of people on TV probably doing that right now. That's just simply not true. Let me give you some examples of this. Noah endured the flood. There was a murder that happened in Adam and Eve's family with their kids. Esther risked her life. Daniel stood against the very king that put these people into exile. Jeremiah himself was was called out and he was mocked publicly. And then he was thrown into a dry cistern, abandoned to live there lonely. So many scriptural examples. Moses was overwhelmed by the task of leading the nation of Israel. And just before he reached the point of burnout, God provided some wisdom and then some help. Just before. 
Peter struggled with humility and lying. Thomas battled doubts. Timothy's confidence wavered. See, just because they were in the midst of this and they'd, re- they'd received this amazing word that God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, even so that never means it's going to be problem-free. It doesn't mean it's going to be problem-free. I was reminded, we didn't sing this song today, but I was reminded of this song this morning. It's lyrics from the, the song Waymaker. I love when we sing that song. The song's so powerful. There's so many times I've had just personal times of worship, just me and Jesus and this song. But here's some of the lyrics. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. That just, that really touches my heart. So can I give you a pastoral plea? My pastoral plea for you is this. Stop wallowing in your situation and start worshiping in your situation. Stop wallowing. Stop the the pity train. The poor, poor, pitiful me, my situation, my marriage, my kids, my finances, my life, my whatever. Stop all of that wallowing because that's not helping you. Instead, start worshiping. Claim the promises of even that song that I just gave the lyrics to, that even in the midst of that, you may not think it, you may not feel it, but yet it's true. Don't you think that the people of God in the middle of the 70 years had some spiritual droughts? Don't you think so? Don't you think that even, even when they got this message, it seems like you know they're on top of the mountain right here. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Don't you think that they're just on the mountaintop right now? But don't you think somewhere in that 70 years they also reached the valley? Don't you think that during some of this 70 years, they were longing for the loved ones who were still stuck back in Judah that they couldn't see? Don't you think that some of them were thinking about what life was like and maybe it was a little bit more simple when they were back in Judah with the rest of their loved ones? Don't you think that they were also thinking back, like, what was it like? Remember when, when, when we used to live in that village, when we used to live around those, those friends, we had those friends, and we used to share those times together? Remember when, when worshiping God was a little bit easier in our homeland, and now it's a little harder because we're in a pagan land? Stop wallowing in your situation. Start worshiping in your situation. You want to see your life turned upside down for the better? Stop wallowing and start worshiping. Start finding God in the midst of that and start calling out to God and praying to God and worshiping God, making a choice to worship God in the middle of that, of that circumstance and in that situation. And you want to see your situation may not immediately change, but your heart will change. And if your heart changes, then everything else starts to change too. The, your disposition, your mindset starts to change. Your heart set starts to change. You start viewing other people in a different way. Instead of being narcissistic, you actually are, are you're ready to serve other people. Instead of just pursuing selfish ambitions, now you're after godly ambitions. It's a game-changing truth, church. Stop wallowing in your situation and start worshiping in your situation. 
That's how you live a life on fire for God. I know that even in, in the midst of this, there's probably a little anxiety. You're like, I know, but I still have the situation. I know that. God knows that. But he wants to walk you through and empower you through that situation. In preparing for this talk, I was also thinking about my time in college and my time in high school, and I had incredible test anxiety. Did anyone else have test anxiety? You know you have test anxiety. Your heart starts racing. Some people get tummy troubles. I'm trying to, like, be nice on that one, you know? Like, it could be a bunch of shortness of breath. You just lose your mind. You're just like, you forget everything. I used to have all sorts of test anxiety, even even through... Um, in my college years, just test anxiety. And, 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 and if I would go out and I would talk to somebody and say, oh, I just have such test anxiety, they would just say, well, don't worry about it. I'm like, really? That's helpful. I, you know what? Here's what I wanted to say. My, my less redeemed part of me wants to say, well, thanks, Einstein. That's great advice. You know, I mean, like, hello, Dr. Phil, you're so helpful. Put me on TV. You know, I mean, like, come on. Like, that's not helpful, is it? That's not helpful. It's like, it's like if, you were, if you struggle with worrying, be like, well, don't worry. Oh, good. Now I have one more thing to worry about. That's awesome. Thank you. Just add to my list. I found a connection with the three causes of test anxiety through our education system. There's the three major causes of anxiety within test taking is very similar to those amongst kingdom people, and here they are. The three major causes of anxiety within kingdom people. First one is the fear of failure. It's fear of failure. It's the thought, what if I fail? What if I go out and I pursue this great faith endeavor and I put myself out there and I tell people what's going to happen and I tell them that I'm going to go out and God's leading me to do this thing and what if that thing just doesn't happen the way that you thought it would? Some people, they have this, this fear of failure so they never actually dare to do great things for God. They never, never maybe even dare to do small things for God because they think in the midst of this, they're going to fail. So the fear of failure causes them to stop. And then there's some folks who never even serve in the church because of that. I got some great news for you. Church is full of failures. <laughs> it's full of them. We've all failed at something. We all have. The second thing is this thought of just lack of preparation. The question behind it is, what if I'm not ready? What if I'm not ready? And the good news is this. You don't need to be ready to do all of what God is asking you to do. You need to be ready to take the first step of what God is asking you to do. You don't need to think so far down the road that I'm not ready for all of that because that's not what God is concerned with. What God's concerned with is, 
Does he have your heart? And will you obey the first thing? Because when you get into the first thing, God empowers you in the first thing. And he builds your strength and character in the first thing. You rely on his strength, not your own thing in the first thing. And then God says, well, here's another thing. And now because you have a proven track record of trusting him, he can then trust you with another thing. And then after you get to that other thing and you're in the middle of it, and yet you push back and you don't, you don't settle with, well, I'm just not prepared. I'm, I can't do this. Instead, you realize... I can't do this. You cry out to God and ask him to do it, and then guess what God does? God says, I know, but you've proven in this place, and remember what I did then, and and look at what I'm doing now, and God says, now I'm ready to take you to the next step. You just need to think steps, not destinations. We get caught up in, well, I'm just not prepared for all of that, and you're not. God wants you with your whole heart to be willing to take the first step. To take the first step. And the last one is poor life history. And this, the statement behind this is, well, I failed before. Well, I failed before. I I remember, yeah, I tried that. I tried that and it didn't go well. I vowed to myself, I'm never doing that again. So we stop. We stop because we, we failed one time. And again, I just word of encouragement. I'm full of encouragement this morning. The room's full of failures. We've all failed. We've all started things and didn't, didn't finish them. And we've all started things and felt like that we were ill-equipped to complete the things. We've all been there. And the amazing thing about God is even in the midst of all of that anxiety, even in the midst of of us being stalled in faith, that God still has a hope and he has a future and he has a plan. And God is continually working. The last thing that you'd fill in if you're a note taker is this. God's plans are prosperous and hopeful with his presence. God's plans are prosperous and hopeful with his presence. I know I've said this verse many times today, and you're going to hear it again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God says at the beginning of verse 14, and I will be found by you. God's plans are prosperous and hopeful when they're rooted in his presence. This isn't something that we just hear one time and then we just walk out the rest of our lives and do whatever we want and be like, now I'm saved. Woo! I got saved. I got baptized. Everything's great. My life's going to be great. I've got it all taken care of. Now I get to go live the rest of my life for me. That's not how it works. If you want a life that is prosperous and continues to be hopeful, it's to go from the point of salvation all the way through to the destination, that being heaven, connected with God eternally with Him, where there's no grieving and there's no mourning and there's no shame and there's no pain and there's no hurting. And and that, that ultimate place of destination, it is with His presence. It's with His presence. And God was reminding the exiles, 
you're going to be in a place and you're going to live amongst the pagans. Don't forget about me. Don't forget about me. You're going to live in a place that's going to be different than Judah. Don't forget about me. You're going to live in a place where they're going to try to wipe away any sort of, of identity. And they want to replace it with a, with a false identity. Don't do it. God continues to work in them. And he continues to, to hold these promises and hold these people for 70 years until he would bring them back to Judah. Such a picture for us today. That no matter where we are, what we've done, our past, God knows our future, and that God loves us, and no one is beyond his grasp. There's a great example in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, go to the right in your Bible if you would, and we're going to end with this. Matthew, excuse me, Mark 4, 35 through 41. Great example. Hopefully this encourages you like it's encouraged me. Mark 4, 35 through 41. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they ask each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. Kingdom people need the king's presence to be calm in the storm. Kingdom people need the king's presence to be calm in the storm. What held the people of God together in their time of exile, what held that boat together, what held the, the disciples' faith together, and what holds all things together for us as kingdom people, those of us who've committed our lives to Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior, is the presence and the power of God.